Good morning. I'm Dwayne Stolzfus, Professor of Communication. And I want to tell you just a little bit about the This I Believe series before introducing the first of our speakers this morning. It was back in the 1950s when public radio began a program that was called simply This I Believe, inviting Americans to share their core values and beliefs, those core values and beliefs that, that guided their daily lives. And millions of Americans gathered around their radios at that time to listen to Eleanor Roosevelt and Jackie Robinson, Helen Keller and Harry Truman, as well as cab drivers and waitresses and scientists and secretaries, distill into just a few minutes something in which they deeply believed. A few years back, NPR, National Public Radio, revived the program and in doing so confirmed that this is a genre that has staying power. It really works. And here are a few of the guidelines that they, they issue. The, the essay should be 350 to 500 words or about three minutes when they're read. The essay should tell a story. They should be brief and specific. A belief should clearly be named. The essay should be positive and they should be personal. And I think what you'll hear this morning will confirm that our, our writers uh, have followed those guidelines well. We're going to hear first this morning from Sheldon Good, who wrote his essay for my Writing for Media class. Uh, by the way, his essay and, and two others were just recently shared on WVPE, the NPR affiliate uh, for Michiana. And then several students from Becky Horse class will share their essays as well. And I would encourage you sometime in the coming days, if you haven't already done so, to go to npr.org slash this I believe and listen to a few of the, the national selections. There's a, a terrific one that was just recently shared by uh, the singer Brian Eno who talks about getting together with some friends and, and just uh, uh, doing a cappella singing and, and what that means to his life. And another one from Sarah Adams of Oregon whose operating philosophy is be cool to the pizza dude, it's good luck. And now Sheldon Good, senior, a double major in business and communication is going to share his essay on what he believes. I believe in sharing food. As a toddler, I needed my own peanut butter and jelly sandwich. In middle school, I had to have my own bowl of popcorn to watch Full House on Friday nights. And ever since high school, I've rarely ordered appetizers in restaurants for fear of having to share my chips and salsa with someone else. This all changed two years ago when I went to Cambodia on SST. Ma, my Cambodian host mother, taught me that sharing food is not an option. It is a communal experience. It is a way of life. At every Cambodian meal, each person received a generous mound of white bai, 
or rice. Small dishes of bony fish soup and fatty chicken and vegetables were strategically placed in the center of the table within reach of everyone. To eat, everyone spooned out food at the same time and chewed loudly, slightly irritating, but a sign of respect to communicate that the food is delicious. Back home in Pennsylvania, I grew up eating meals with my family. I'm used to sharing a common table, but Ma taught me how to take things one step further, to share food, to be vulnerable, to be comfortable enough to eat from a common plate. In Latin, this idea is referred to as communis, meaning to share by all or many. The etymological root of words such as communal, community, and communication. In Cambodia, sharing food is not a hurried act, but a cherished process. It is an intimate experience meant to enrich relationships and develop community. Ma constantly reminded me that our dinner table was open to anyone. My family didn't have many possessions, but they shared gracefully. And for my 20th birthday, Ma invited all 25 Goshen College students and Keith Graber Miller over to our house for chicken curry, my favorite food. The meal was loud and entertaining, complete with cheesecake for dessert and leftovers for a week. After three hours of eating, we sang happy birthday in Kamai and doused each other in silly string. Back in the States, I now eagerly share my food with others. While traveling abroad this past summer, my friends and I became coffee connoisseurs as we taste tested each other's café con leche in Spain. And while in Morocco, I purposely ordered more couscous than I knew I could eat on my own. And so the next time I sit down to watch a movie or the Phillies on TV, I will remember to pop twice as much popcorn. And I imagine Ma will be pleased. I teach one section of oral communication, and our final individual speech assignment was to do a manuscript This I Believe speech. And the class voted on their favorite speeches, and the four speakers that you hear today are some that got the most votes as the best speeches of the class. I'll introduce two speakers, they'll speak, and then I'll introduce the other two speakers. First speaker will be Katie Genke. She's a sophomore communication major, conflict studies minor from Eastern Tennessee, and her title is I Believe in Heritage. And then following Katie will be Liz Berg, who is a first-year nursing major from Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada, and her title is I Believe in a Power Greater Than Myself. So Katie and then Liz. I believe that my southern draw is something special, something that I can be proud of. I haven't always felt this way. When I came to northern Indiana from the southeast to college, I knew no one, and I was eager to make a good impression. I felt compelled to disguise my slightly slower and telling accent. If I had been more confident, I wouldn't have cared what people thought when they heard me speak but I was impatient and self-conscious and also a little worried that I might fit the southern dumb blonde stereotype a little too well. 
Sadly, now I blend my accent to fit in with whoever's speaking, often with no conscious thought. Even now, while giving a speech about my accent, I can hear that I'm subconsciously making an effort to sound more formal or less Southern. So whether intentional or not, my accent is something very few of my, of my college friends will ever hear in full force. However, when I go home or when I'm reminded of home, my accent comes back in all its long-eyed and drop-dreed glory. You can hear it sometimes in my thank yous, my pleases, and in all my I love yous. You can hear my accent when I'm talking to my little sister on the phone. You can hear my accent when I get emotional. There are a few things I miss more than the sound of my name from a loved one back home. Katie. If I could change one thing about my first year at college, it would be the insecurity I felt about my accent. I wish that I'd greeted everyone with a hi, y'all, and a big smile. I wish that I'd not felt bitterness towards people who thought my accent was funny or wrong. After all, every group has its stereotypes, and how can I blame anyone for assuming things about the South when I was so carefully trying to disguise my connection to all things Southern? So what do I believe? I believe that my heritage is beautiful, and I believe that my home is beautiful, and I believe that my accent is beautiful. But more than anything, I believe that we should all be so proud of the unique places that we are from. I know that I lost something irreplaceable the day that I allowed myself to feel in fear because of where I'm from. I also now know that there are few things in this world as important as diversity. I've learned that the best way to alleviate my insecurity is to just be myself. I now believe strongly that my southern accent is a testament to a place that I'm very glad to have grown up. I'm so proud to be from Tennessee, y'all. I believe in a power bigger than me. I believe there's more to this life than the few tricklings or a couple of ripples in the oceans of this life that we see. For me, the existence of something, someone, fuels me the reality of my life. There is not a day that goes by that I don't stand still, even for a second, and marvel at all that I perpetually fail to understand, to grasp. In a world where there is strife at every turn and pain woven deep into the souls of humanity, how can I not? For Mercy, it was this hope, this belief that defined her life. Imagine a little girl that looks about five, but is really ten, her body ravaged by AIDS. Sores cover her back and her head, and with every movement, her joints ache. In 2003, I had the esteemed privilege of being part of her short life when I went to Andola, Zambia. Every day, despite the pain she was in, she was the first to smile. She was the first to tell a joke. This part of her never wavered. My aunt asked her one day if she was afraid to die, and she replied, why should I be afraid, auntie? Where I'm going, there's no pain, no sickness. My father is waiting for me. That night, she died in my arms with a smile on her face and a freeing look in her eyes. For Mercy, her belief in something bigger than herself released her from fear. It released her from all the doubt and all the pain. But for me, watching her die, it broke something inside. I wrestled with the notion of what I had seen, with the courage that she continually displayed. I didn't understand it. Why did someone so innocent, someone that was supposed to be playing and running, have to experience that? 
What kind of God allows this to happen? I was like this for a long time, doubting all that I had been taught, all the rules, all the verses, all the ideal ideologies about a loving God that supposedly gave his son for a sacrifice for us, all because he loved us. What a joke. Where was the love in her life? Mercy was orphaned at the age of four when her parents died in a car crash. Then her sisters and her kicked out of their parents' home by relatives who wanted to sell their home for money and made to live on the streets. But they did not have the fortune of being kicked out before their grandfather and uncle first sexually abused them, thus believed the root of Mercy's HIV. Mercy, her name is ironic. I finally came to a place in my life where I could see past what had happened to her and see the beauty of her life. The beauty was not in the details of her life, what had happened to her, but rather where she chose to put her trust and her faith. Despite all the injustices in her life, she saw a father that would never forsake her, that took her hand and led her into eternity with no pain and no sickness, no abuse and no suffering. She saw Jesus. She saw his brokenness and it resounded with hers. She believed in his hope. C.S. Lewis once said, God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks to us in our conscience, but our pain, he shouts. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Through her pain, he shouted at me and revealed to me that I am only a letter of a word and a love letter to the world. And at the end of the day, God is God, the same God he was in the morning. It is to this I just surrender my understanding, my confusion, and believe in something bigger than myself. Our next speaker will be Drew Hostetler. Drew is a first year from near Chicago. He's a communication major. He grew up in Italy, and I believe this comes out in his speech. His title is, I Believe in Second Chances. And then our last speaker will be Patrick Maxwell, a sophomore from near Boston, Massachusetts. Patrick is a theater major and a minor in Bible and religion, and his title is, I Believe in Mediocrity. So Drew and then Patrick. I believe in second chances. I believe that no matter what kind of mistakes a person has made, he or she deserves a chance at redemption. My family experience is a perfect example. About six years ago, I had moved back to the United States with my family, ready to start off fresh once again. My siblings and I had never really dabbled or been tempted by the world of substance abuse, seeing as we lived in such a sheltered community back where we came from. My sister Allison was the first to cave in. She began using low-key drugs and consuming alcohol excessively until it became apparent to my parents. They had decided to send her away to a boarding school in Iowa for as long as it took for her to recover from her addictions. She emerged a, new, a year later in a new person completely. For the first time in years, I was able to have the sister that I remembered and loved back into my life. It only took a few months for her to go back to where she had started, only worse. On a crisp July night two years ago, my sister was struck by a van whilst crossing a local highway two blocks away from our house. At the time, she was under the influence of a powerful drug and had a substantial amount of alcohol in her system. She shattered her pelvis, fractured her wrist, and had a severe concussion. 
Whilst in the hospital, she only wanted to get out so she could go back to partying and to see her friends again. The same friends that left her on the side of the road after the accident. The court ordered that she take part in a rehabilitation program for the next few months, and she reluctantly agreed. She fought the process and the program every step of the way and was eventually let go. Part of her follow-up program is, had been that she must attend an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting, and she is now two years sober. My sister had been lucky enough to walk away with her life, with her second chance, and now leads a healthy, productive, and fulfilling existence. About six weeks ago, I had the chance of meeting one of the most mysterious men I had ever heard of in my life, my uncle, Dirk Christopher Hostetler. There had always been trouble in my father's home involving Dirk and his father. They never agreed on anything. Eventually, Dirk had decided that he no longer wanted anything to do with our family and moved out, changing his last name. In 1977, Dirk was in a car accident. Both drivers and passengers of both cars were killed on impact. Dirk was sitting in the back seat and inhaled his own vomit when the car crashed and was pronounced dead for 45 minutes. The doctors tried vigorously to, to revive him and told my grandmother that if he was to survive, he'd be nothing more than a vegetable due to the massive hemorrhaging in his brain. They were wrong, dead wrong. He survived and recovered completely. Now the reason I'm telling you this is that Dirk was recently diagnosed with pancreatic cancer and was given four weeks to live. About four weeks ago, my father had seen his brother for the first time in 17 years, and I had only just met him. I sat by the fireside while he told me his life story, the mistakes he made, and the hardships that he went through. He told me about second chances and how I should learn from every mistake that I made and never take one lightly. He told me he threw away his second chance at life. He had a chance to undo everything that he had unraveled and live his last healthy, joyous years with the family he had tried so hard to push away. He told me that while he was dead, he convinced them to let him come back. He kept telling them that it wasn't his time to go, that he was too young and he had too much to take care of. He'd always dodged the question as to who they were. He kept telling me that life was too short to sweat the details. He kept telling me to love unconditionally no matter what the circumstances. He insisted that he had earned his second chance and thrown it away. Dirk Christopher Host passed away the next morning at around 3 o'clock. I believe that my sister's and uncle's mistakes have shown me how to live my life. Before meeting my uncle and almost losing my sister, I lived a very carefree lifestyle. I never looked deeper than the bottom of my cereal bowl for breakfast. In a sense, my uncle and sister had given me a second chance without having to go through all the hardships that they did. Now I believe that Dirk's car accident wasn't his second chance, but the day that he received the news of his pancreatic cancer was. Instead of dying alone, he chose to erase all of the grudges and pain that he had endured in his past and to embrace the family that he should have all of those years ago. From these experiences, I have decided never to abuse a second of the life I have been blessed with. These two events may have been horrible and life-changing, but I have learned something about myself. They have incited me to always live life to its fullest and to never strain on the details. Thank you.
When I was a kid, I wanted to be an astronaut. Who didn't? We all had dreams of zooming around in outer space in our shiny white spacesuits and spaceships. But I didn't want to be just any astronaut. No, my ambition was to be the first human being to set foot on the planet Mars. Being a regular garden variety astronaut was simply not good enough. I had to be the best of the best. Now, my astronaut phase soon wore off as I found other professions to admire, such as musicians or inventors or even at one point superheroes. But regardless, whether I envisioned myself as a drummer or a physicist, I always knew with certainty that I would be the best darn physicist in the world. Because really, if I wasn't the best, what's the point? In one of my favorite movies, the 1999 film Fight Club, Brad Pitt's character Tyler Durden gives a speech to the members of the bare knuckle boxing club that he leads. We've all been raised on television, he says, to believe that one day we'd all be millionaires and movie stars and rock gods. But we won't, and we're slowly learning that fact, and we are very, very pissed off. It's true. From our earliest childhood days, we've been shown images of CEOs, presidents, athletes, and millionaires, all of whom started out just like us. If we do well enough on this test, or ace that paper, or get straight A's, the story goes, someday we'll be just like them. Do well in middle school so you can get the good classes in high school. Do well in high school so you can get a scholarship to a decent college. Do well in college so that only the best grad schools will accept you and you may just be rewarded with fame, fortune, and happiness. But just like Tyler Durden, we're slowly learning that the majority of us will never grace the red carpets of Hollywood or give an acceptance speech for a Nobel Prize. More than likely, our futures consist of mortgages, dirty diapers, and student loans. But that's okay, because the other great lie of the American success story is the myth that the people we see smiling on TV are happy. Despite the fact that Kurt Cobain killed himself, Vincent van Gogh went crazy, Tupac got shot, and most celebrity marriages end in divorce, we're still expected to believe that these are the people we want to model our lives after if we want to live out our existences feeling fulfilled and happy. <laughs> what exactly are we chasing? What do we want? Uh, a life in and out of drug rehab like Lindsay Lohan? A crippling paranoid dementia like Edgar Allan Poe? A cocaine habit like Freud? These are the great minds and faces that have been set up for us to aspire to, but who in their right mind would want to live their lives? So this is why I can proudly say that I believe in mediocrity. Because celebrities crack under the pressure, because genius and insanity go hand in hand, because those at the top are so often so unhappy. I believe in mediocrity. Not as an excuse not to fulfill my potential, but as a reason not to burn myself out. I'll admit it's something I have to work hard to remember, especially since it's been pounded into my head all my life that I need to be at the top of the heap if I want my existence to mean something. But it's worth it, so that I don't stress myself out when I don't get an A on every paper or speech. It's worth it so I don't look down on the people who are farther down on the imaginary scale of accomplishment than I am, or feel inferior to the ones that are higher. It's worth it because I need to remember that I'm just one person, and there are limits to what I can and can't do. So, instead of chasing some unattainable, far-off dream of perfection, instead of spending my few short years on this earth frantically piling up achievement on top of achievement, I believe that the way to a more joyful, more fulfilling life is through accepting the necessity of mediocrity. I believe in mediocrity. I believe in renouncing stress, relaxing control, and reducing anxiety.
My years on earth will be happier for it, and while I may not be remembered long after I'm dead, something tells me I won't really care by that point. Now, the odds are good that none of us in this room will ever be a famous musician, movie star, or millionaire. But I believe that that's okay. Because later on in the movie, Tyler Durden tells us, you are not special. You are not a unique or beautiful snowflake. You are the same decaying organic matter as everything else. And while on the surface that statement may seem depressing, I, for one, find something incredibly freeing in it. Thank you.